David will be glad to know that as we saw a couple weeks ago from Revelation chapter 7, that one day we will all be the choir as we stand around the throne of God and sing his praises forever and ever. So let me invite you to open up the scriptures with me this morning to that book once again, the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, as we look at this good book one more time before we turn in a new direction. But Revelation chapter 20, this is right near the end of the biblical uh, record, the biblical account. So as you find your place in Revelation chapter 20, let me invite you to join me standing for the reading of God's word. In Revelation chapter 20, I'll begin reading in verse 7, and there scripture reads this way. It says, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the prophet false prophet had been thrown and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever father we do ask you now to guide us by your spirit and understanding the truths of your word father open our eyes that we may see open our ears that we may hear father open my mouth that i might speak in a way that glorifies you and it's in jesus name we pray and ask these things amen well you may be seated I told Ashley uh, earlier this week that I needed about another month to prepare to preach uh, this sermon because there's just so much in this text and in the verses that follow. In fact, this particular passage builds upon the previous six verses, which are no doubt the most controversial and debated verses in all of the book of Revelation, which you probably know is probably the most debated book in the whole Bible. Now, don't mishear me, not debated in the sense of whether or not it's true, but debated uh, by biblical interpreters, by believers who believe in the authority of God's word as to how we are to understand this. But in light of all that, it's important for us today as we look at God's word, as it is every week, but particularly today as we look at this portion of God's word, that we see the big picture So I want us to see the big picture here because we could certainly get bogged down in the details, in the mysterious, and that is good. There's there's a place for that, but if we're not careful, we get so consumed in the details that we miss the big picture. And one of the central truths of this text and of this book and of all of Scripture is the truth that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. So look back. Indeed, the text says in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 20, when the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. These are, uh, it became descriptive of Israel's enemies and to gather them for battle. In number, they are like the sand on the seashore. So this thousand years that's described here and in the verses that lead up to this have uh, been the subject of of much discussion when will this time period take place what will it be like is it already taking place is it in the future is it far in the future is it coming soon 
Is it a literal thousand years or is it symbolic of a, a larger length of time, an extended period of time when Christ rules and reigns with his people and exercises his power over Satan? Well, these are good questions and I certainly have my opinion and perspective on these and I would love to talk to you about these. So if this kind of thing lights your fire, then please reach out to me. I would love to have that type of discussion with you. But for the sake of this morning, it is more important that we don't get bogged down in those things because if we do, we very likely will miss the main point, the point of Jesus' victory and what that will be like for his people. Now, many of you know that growing up, I spent quite a bit of time uh, playing tennis. I uh, enjoyed other sports and still enjoy other sports, but for a period of time in my life, that was sort of my sport, my thing. And I spent a lot of time practicing and preparing for various tournaments and competitions. And I can remember when I was about 14 uh, years old, uh, I began practicing with a new tennis pro uh, in town uh, named Keith. And Keith was probably in his late 30s at the time, but uh, some years prior to that, he had played uh, for Ole Miss, which at the time was one of the best uh, men's tennis schools in uh, the country, and then he had gone on to, to spend a short stint playing professionally. Now, even though it had been a few years, it been several years, uh, he was still six foot five, and he still could serve 130 miles per hour uh, consistently. And so Keith was so good uh, that he could beat me by whatever score he wanted to on any day of the week. Uh, and so because he could do so, he, w- he would keep the, the match fairly close to make me think that I'm progressing, that I'm, I'm doing well to keep my confidence up, I guess, to keep me uh, coming back. Uh, but uh, if and when the match really mattered, uh, it was no match at all. When it came down to it, I, I didn't stand a chance. Likewise, church, the picture painted here in God's word is that the devil does not stand a chance against Jesus. He has no chance. In fact, the scriptures are clear that the devil can do nothing without permission from God himself. This is illustrated in the scriptures by the story of of Job. And so here we have this description of this thousand years in which the devil is is bound or his his powers are limited and then at the end of that period of time he is released and he begins to go out and he begins to do what he does best begins to deceive people and to gather them to stand against the truth to stand against God and his people and so he gathers people from all over the world the picture that's painted here is that they number like their number is like the sand of the seashore But verse 9, it says, They marched across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of God's people, the city he loves. But fire came down from heaven and devoured them. Fire came down from heaven and devoured them. I think this is uh, a picture of the same battle that is described in Revelation chapter 19 and also in Revelation chapter 16, elsewhere described as Armageddon. This is Satan's last and great attempt to oppose God and the people of of God. And I love the way that one uh, Bible interpreter describes his attempt. Describes Satan's attempt to gather his armies and to stand against God as, get this, a tempest in a teapot. As a a storm confined to a, a little kettle. In other words, he has no chance. 
The end is rigged. The story is rigged. Jesus wins and he wins decisively. There's really no battle at all. In fact, one pastor describes this event uh, this way. He says, no fight scene is reported. Fire comes down from heaven and the war is over before it begins. In the presence of the almighty God, Satan is the defeated foe. There is no heroic last stand. Nothing worth reporting. Church, Satan is no match for Jesus. So let's trust Jesus. Let's trust Jesus. Let's trust the one who who rules and who reigns on high. Let's trust the one who is supreme. Let's trust the one who is God. As we walk and as we live in the here and now on this earth, waiting for Him to return, knowing that in the meantime, life is tough. Sin runs deep. Oppression and injustice continue. Satan is real and he prowls around, according to Scripture, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But even so, Jesus is coming and Jesus is victorious and Jesus wins. But he continues to tarry. He tarries for a little while longer. Not wanting anyone to perish. But everyone to come to repentance. Second Peter chapter 3 verse 9. The truth is that Jesus wins. But even so, friends, his victory is not experienced in such a positive way by all. It is not a happily ever after for all. He is also the righteous judge. The one who wins, the one who reigns is a righteous judge for Jesus judges. The Bible's clear. The scriptures are clear on this, that Jesus judges. Look back at the text with me. And our culture certainly encourages us and prods us to be our own judge, does it not? To determine what is best for us, what is right for us. The scriptures don't leave that option open. Revelation chapter 20, picking up in verse 11. John is writing, he says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence. There was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done, as recorded in the books. Verse 13, The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. And each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. Skip down to chapter 21, verse 8. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Friends, hear me on this. The scripture is clear in its message that hell is real. And that hell is painted in such a way as to be unending judgment from God, a perfect and holy and righteous God against sin. That's not a comforting message. Certainly not a popular message 
today, but you absolutely cannot take Jesus seriously and the record of Jesus' ministry and teaching seriously and deny the existence of hell. For he talks about it quite a bit. And C.S. Lewis, the world-renowned Christian author, says this about this hell. He says, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words. You know, one problem with much present, much contemporary theological debate is that we assume what Lewis would never assume, that the power lays in us to remove any teaching or doctrine in the Scriptures that rubs against our will, our feelings, our desires, or our present cultural mood. The truth is that we are not God. And so we don't have that option We are certainly not God, but we have been created by God in His image, in His likeness. We have been created to know and to obey God. We have been created with distinct privileges and opportunities. And I think whether he realizes it or not, in one of his books, Dr. Seuss helps us understand this very truth. In Dr. Seuss's book, Happy Birthday to You, he says this. I want to share a page with you. He says, if we didn't have birthdays, you wouldn't be you. If you've never been born, well, then what would you do? If you've never been born, well, then what would you be? You might be a fish or a toad in a tree. You might be a doorknob or three baked potatoes. You might be a bag full of hard green tomatoes. Or worse than all that, you might be a wasn't. A wasn't has no fun at all. No, he doesn't. A wasn't just isn't. He just isn't present. But you, you are you. And now isn't that Pleasant. Now hear me on this. That seems rather silly, but hear me on this. Because you are you, a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, a human created in the image and likeness of God, you were created with a responsibility before God and reason and for relationship with God and with others. Because you were created as a human being in the image and likeness of God, you and I are accountable to God. And the Bible is clear that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are accountable to God, but we none, none of us measure up. We've all fallen short. And the Bible is also clear that all of us will one day stand before God as this courtroom scene described in Revelation chapter 20 conveys, and we will either be judged by our works, chapter 20, verses 12 and 13, or we will be judged by Christ's work on our behalf, Romans chapter 3, verses 25 and 26. So let me ask you this morning, do you know that you need Christ? Have you repented of sin and A life ruled by yourself and embrace Jesus as Lord and Savior. Have you trusted in Jesus for salvation? Friends, if the Bible is true, and I certainly believe that it is with all my heart, then sin is far too seriously to take lightly. Turn to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. C.S. Lewis went on to describe and to write about what he sees in the Scriptures about this final judgment and warnings about this final judgment. And he warns us as believers not simply to read a text like this and think of other people that this might be for. 
He says this, he says, this is not about your wife or your son, nor about Nero. Remember that first century wicked Roman emperor or Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed Jesus? No, it is about you and it's about me. And so as we read the biblical record on this subject, on judgment, on the king who rules and reigns and who will judge all. We must examine ourselves and examine where we stand before God. Will we be judged by our own works or will we be judged by Christ's accomplished work for us because we have received his gift of salvation by grace through faith in him? The truth is that all will stand before him. The great and the small, the dead or alive, all will stand before him. And because all will stand before him, we must repent of wickedness. Friends, repent of wickedness, repent of, of sin and self and pride and arrogance and rebellion against God in your own life. Turn away from this life that is all about you and all about me and embrace the king. Embrace the one who, who wins. Embrace the one who is our savior, who is our Our Lord, embrace the one who was sent by God as the rescue plan to keep us from experiencing the fullness of God's judgment against sin. Embrace the one who is part of God's eternal plan to redeem and to restore and to reconcile a broken and rebellious people to himself. Embrace Jesus. For Jesus' delay in coming is simply a display of his mercy Wanting people to repent. We see this over and over in the book of Revelation as God's judgment builds and the case builds against the wicked. It's meant to prod the wicked toward repentance and toward embracing Him. How will you be judged on that day? By what you've done? By what Christ has done? Repent of wickedness and then secondly, warn the world. Warn the world. Speak the message of salvation. Speak the message of forgiveness. Speak of the need for a Savior. Speak of the need for Christ to all those that you encounter. Simply no room among believers for a self-absorbed, comfortable life that never embraces gospel conversations. Church, we must, if we believe the truths of God's Word, we must be about gospel conversations. Speaking of the saving grace of God to all those we encounter, for all will one day stand before him and give an account. Church, Jesus wins. Jesus judges. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, in the final portion of this story, we see that Jesus also gives new and full life. Jesus gives new and full life. So look back at The scriptures with me. Revelation chapter 21, beginning in verse 1. John wrote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more 
death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Verse 5, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. So the graphic images that are employed by the scriptures here, just as in chapter 7 of Revelation, are used to describe a place of protection and provision in the presence of, of God. And here, this new Jerusalem, this new city that's being described in this graphic detail, this beautiful image painted as a bride is the church. It is the people of God who've been restored to right relationship with, with Him. Reminding us that it's not just about a place. Certainly, a, a real new creation, a new heaven, a new earth, a new heaven, a, a real place that we will gather with Christ, but just as much about a people who are in right fellowship with God. And we see here in the description in God's word that in this place, God will dwell with his people. God will dwell with his people. Look back at chapter 21, verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. So backing up as we think about what the scriptures teach about this idea of God's presence with his people. We're certainly reminded of the temple in the Old Testament. And even before the temple, the tabernacle, this portable sanctuary where God was believed to dwell in a special way among his people. Certainly not limiting his presence. We know that God is omnipresent. He's ever present. But he dwelt in a particular way among his, his people. They were invited to approach him through sacrifices of atonement. And then fast forward several hundred years and we read in John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 14, that God came to dwell on earth, that in Jesus, God came to dwell with people. He came to tabernacle among people. And then fast forward to the end of Jesus' life post his death and resurrection. And we learn from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, that we can approach God confidently now. We can come into his presence, the most holy presence of God, by the blood of, of Jesus. And now the picture of this new heaven, this new earth, is a picture of unhindered access to God. Enjoying his presence for forever and ever. The tabernacle and the temple didn't just symbolize God's presence on earth with his people, but it also portrayed the separation that had to be dealt with between God and his people. There was a certain way to approach his presence in the temple or the tabernacle. It must be approached through the priests and through offerings, through a certain way. But now, through Jesus and the new heaven and the new earth, there will no longer be any sin. So there will be no need for separation. We will enjoy the fullness of God's presence and forever enjoy Him. Jesus Himself 
is and will continue to be our reward. God will dwell among his people. And secondly, we see here that God will eliminate evil among his people. God will eliminate evil among his people as the curse of sin is reversed. There will be no more sin. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. There will be no more pain. There will be no more hardship as we enjoy the provision of God. You know, even the best friendships and the best marriages and the best pursuits and the most satisfying things here on earth are still tainted by sin. But in heaven there will be no more sin. In heaven, those who know Christ will really live. Life will no longer be characterized by death. It will be characterized by really living. And the Word of God tells us that when that trumpet sounds, when the Lord returns, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 52, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. A victory, not because we have earned it or deserve it, but because of his mercy. So here's the deal. Here's the truth. Jesus rules. He reigns victorious. Thus he wins. And Jesus is the holy and righteous one. Thus he judges. But Jesus is also the gracious and compassionate one. Thus he gives new and full life. Not because of anything in us, but because of something in him. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. So church, Jesus offers you and he offers me new and full life, life that never ends. Thus, receive his life. Receive his life. Receive the life, the abundant and eternal life that he offers us by calling on Jesus, by repenting of sin and trusting in Jesus, by embracing him as Lord and Savior, by recognizing your need for His provisionary and substitutionary sacrifice on the cross in your place and in my place. Receive His gift by becoming a child of God with an inheritance that the Bible says can never perish, spoil, or fade away. Receive His life by exchanging your guilt before God for Christ's innocence, for His righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21, receive his life and then believers refuse to compromise. Refuse to compromise. Call of scripture and certainly the call of the book of Revelation is to believers living in this world. Facing opposition and hardship and turmoil and temptation. And it's a call to remain faithful to the Lord. To examine ourselves as to where we stand before God and then to pursue a life that is faithful to Him. Verse 7 of chapter 21 says, Those who are victorious will inherit all this. And I will be their God and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery, the fiery lake 
of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Those who are victorious are those who are faithful, revealing the genuineness of their faith in Christ. And this picture, this list in verse 8 is not meant to convey a list of unforgivable sins. For if that were the case, none of us would be forgiven. But it's a picture contrasting what a life that knows and follows Christ looks like with a life that remains in the flesh. Church, receive Christ's life, refuse to compromise, and third and finally, rest in God's eternal promises. Rest in His promises. Find hope and comfort in His Word. Who He says He is. Verse 5, He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then He said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. The Word of God is trustworthy and true. For God is a reliable and faithful God. And the one who said from the cross, it is finished now says from the throne of heaven, it is done. Promise of everlasting death for those who don't turn to Christ is is true. Yet the promise of everlasting life for those who turn and embrace Christ is also equally true. For God is the supreme judge and giver of life. The God of the Bible, the one and only God, the God who has made himself known to us, our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, is the supreme judge and giver of life. So let me ask you this morning, how will this supreme judge judge you? What will you claim when you stand before the throne of God? Will you be judged based upon your own efforts, your own works, which the Bible is clear, all fall short, all of our efforts fall short of God's standard of perfect holiness? Or will you be judged based upon the accomplished work of Christ in your place on the cross? Let me urge you, turn to Jesus today. Trust in Christ today. Embrace the Lamb today. Trust in Him Receive His life, the new and full life that He offers to all. In just a moment, we're going to respond to the truths of God's Word as we do week after week. And we remind you and encourage you that this is a time for all of us to examine where we stand before God and to respond to Him with openness and transparency, turning to Him with brokenness over our sin, but thanksgiving at His provision for us. We urge you, don't leave today without knowing where you stand before Christ. Know that I'll be responding just as you are to the truths of God's Word, but I'm available. Come and see me. If you sense that God is leading you to Christ, you don't know what that looks like or how to respond, come see me. I would love to talk with you Certainly would love to talk with you immediately following the service and the foyer that we can have a more extended conversation. But know that this is a time for all of us to respond, to respond by acknowledging our sin before God, recognizing His provision for us, thanking Him for His provision for us, and declaring His praises. So let's do just that. Father, we pray that You would guide us now or that Your presence would be known and felt among us 
Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you that you are a God who has done for us what we can never do on our own. Father, that by your grace, you have sought to rescue us from sin. Despite our wickedness, despite our failures. Father, we thank you that you give us a new status, a new position before you as your children. Father, remind us this morning as as we respond, as we sing, as we go in a few minutes of who we are in you. Lord, lead us now, hear our praise, work in our hearts, and it's in Christ's name we pray and ask these things. Amen.